Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the program. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic is Trusted Workforce 2.0. My guests on that panel were Matt Eanes, the Director of the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office at the Office of Personnel Management, Heather Green, the Deputy Assistant Director for Vetting Risk Operations and Consolidated Adjudicated Services in the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, Jeff Smith, the Program Executive Officer for the National Background Investigation Services, also in the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, and Mary Rose McCaffrey, the Vice President of Security at Northrop Grumman. To begin this segment, we hear from OPM's Matt Eanes. I think in the spirit of this panel, maybe the most important thing for me to start with that people might not know, which is what is the state of Trusted Workforce 2.0, which uh, I think is a really good philosophical question. Stepping back a moment, our, our journey really began after we experienced significant program changes and we were addressing a backlog. This was back before the numbers, as Jason said, were 76 and 127 days, but we were well over a year to process background investigations. So the first phase of the work really focused on getting the backlog and the timeliness under control. We reduced that from 750,000 cases. It's now hovering around 157,000 cases. Uh, after that, we started turning our attention to new ways to do the work. That involved uh, rewriting and recrafting the majority of the policies. So that was really the focus of the work in 20 and 21. Then we quickly turned our attention, as Jason said, to getting folks enrolled into continuous vetting. And that was focused on just the national security sensitive population. So all those individuals with top secret and secret clearances, which is about 4.48 million folks are now enrolled in continuous vetting and was largely done pretty seamlessly, not completely seamlessly, but you're going to hear from Heather today, who had a big role in not making that a burden on industry. Now we're turning our attention to a new and exciting phase. So I just want to highlight what you're going to see for the next three years. And some of the uh, Jeff and Heather and myself will be able to answer more questions about these things as we go. If the focus of last year was getting everyone into continuous vetting for the national security population, the focus of this year is beginning our transition into INVIS, in particular, the transfer from EQIP to EAP. The focus for next year will be moving the continuous vetting model into the non-sensitive public trust population. So I know many of you are very heavy on the national security sensitive side, but the other half of our population is the non-sensitive population. So they'll begin their journey in 24. And then following in 25, you're going to start to see all the new products and the new model roll out as we move into three tiers and we move into the new forms and the new products. Uh, so that's kind of the big chunks of what's going to be happening each year. And as you see all of this activity that's happening, all the different piece parts, kind of anchor it back to these big phases of work that are happening iteratively each year. You mentioned the transition to MBIS. You mentioned the EQIP to EAP. How did that transition or how is it going? Is there anything you can tell us about the app so far, how it's working, uh, or, or at least the plans uh, for, for testing, piloting, and the like? Well, I'll defer a good portion of that to Jeff, who uh, coincidentally just popped on the camera to make sure I didn't talk too much about it. But I would like to brag on the work that's been done there for a moment. We are starting to talk about the Invis rollout now, but most folks may not know that the first component of Invis was actually deployed last year or late the previous year with position designation tool. 
It's the first shared service that rolled out. It's where the process begins at the very front end and feeds everything behind it. While all of that was going on, Jeff and his team were really hard at work building the underlying eApp uh, architecture and piloting it for a good portion of the last year, kicking the tires. And they're now at the phase where they're beginning to significantly scale it. So I'll let him add in a bit more when we get to him on what the plan is. But what you're going to see from now to the end of the year is a hockey stick in growth of submissions. And Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're well over 40,000 cases that have been submitted through EAP to date. So that the, the system's getting some good pressure testing. Yeah, maybe in fact, I'll pick up there, Matt, if you don't mind us. Actually, we're at 56,000 cases. 83 agencies are currently submitting at least one or more cases in the system. So that's 83 out of 103 federal agencies that have been completely onboarded and are currently in their, coming out of their training cycle. So we're pressure testing the system that started last March. Uh, just to carry you through that, we incrementally started with one form, iteratively brought one form online, the SF86. Uh, over the year, we brought on all four forms uh, and we've added pre-fill. So all of those muscle movements for the initiation review and authorize for case initiation are uh, fully active right now. And uh, perhaps what I will do is talk about what industry may or may not know or what's new. Uh, we talked a little bit about industries uh, push uh, to scale from equip to EAP. But if you're not aware, I hope this is not the first time you're hearing it, that industry is full bore into Operation Popcorn or the transition of industry uh, with the same phased approach, fundamental push towards a one October date to bring industry across the threshold into case initiation. Now, that's very deliberate with what I'm saying. Case initiation, not the full bore use of all elements of INVIS, but to get you across the threshold to let go of EQIP and really start the case initiation process using INVIS and the mechanisms that have been built in place for error checking and correction. Additional phases and capability will be bought on board deliberately for Invis, such as the DIS transition. But just so you hear it from me, it's expected that DIS will still be your foundational system as you start to cut across and start to use EAP versus EQIP. So nothing is going to change initially. And in very, in very short order, as we continue to mature, we will activate other elements of the system. Thank you, Jeff. I uh, appreciate you, uh, the tag team with Matt. It sounds like efforts you're doing around getting more agencies on board. And so I guess two quick follow-ups, uh, 83 out of 103, I imagine you, the other 20 agencies will be coming on board in the, in the coming months, coming year. What's going on now is a full court press. Uh, Matt mentioned it. Uh, we're uh, literally messaging uh, to the federal population to include DOD, full court press. They, they have phased dates. A grouping of them will uh, work to fully scale, not only onboard, but their sub-elements of their agency will scale in tranches of March 31st, June, and then uh, roughly by the 1st of September will be the third. And uh, the goal is to get all of the federal partners at scale, 115 federal agencies, not only onboarded, trained, and scaled by the, the fourth quarter of the year. So that's the big push there. Secondly, we work through Operation Popcorn for industry. We will also, first and foremost, industry is underway right now. You're in your prep time. Uh, much of the training for industry in getting case initiation established is being done through self-help portals. 
available training, uh, account provisioning, and essentially getting you to a point where you can cross the threshold. Industry should recognize that of the 13,000 agencies, there are a lot of small, uh, smaller organizations that are one deep. They submit less than uh, 12 cases a year, as an example, all the way up to our big partners, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Northrop Grumman. Uh, those, those companies have a whole different scaling problem or, or, or effort. So they're in different phases. It'll be easier for the smaller organizations, obviously. But as we get to some of our bigger organizations, more capability, more reports, more fundamental things that the larger companies are looking for will mature with the system and we'll bring them up to scale as well. But again, at the end of the day, our push is to get everybody into EAP, first tranche, both industry and federal, uh, by the fourth quarter of this FY. Yeah, I love the name Operation Popcorn. But really, the, this first step for industry is just letting them go with that equip and moving them to start the initiation of EAP. Do you just want to maybe offer a little bit of, of what that initial use of the EAP will look like? And then where, where are they going next over the course of the next, again, 6, 8, 10, 12 months or however long it's going to take? We often refer to case initiation as the front door of Invis. So there are five, uh, five swim lanes to building out the Indian system that cover all three mission areas. And those three mission areas are our vetting risk operations center for continuous vetting, uh, the adjudications facility, our, uh, our services capability for uh, meeting that adjudications capability for the whole of government, as well as our background investigation mission area. Additionally, we have some swim lanes and subject management uh, to finish up the work to allow us to get off of discs. Uh, so ultimately, uh, first, open the door, uh, all about getting off of EQIP, moving to EAP. The major differences in EAP to EQIP is a lot of automated error checking correction to simplify um, and make the customer have a much more user-friendly experience. Some of the things that were wearing us down uh, as a whole of government was the back and forth with bad data in, uh, having to back and forth until we can get uh, all that data corrected and move through the investigation process. Embus EAP is built in error checking and correction that allows you not to be able to move through the system until you kind of get green check marks on entering in all your data from where you lived, uh, your affiliations, and it has other uh, built-in help in the system, such as postal codes. So when you type in your historical uh, areas of where you lived, it makes sure that you actually have uh, an alignment. It checks your addresses against the postal address. It simplifies and corrects all that information and doesn't allow you to advance until you have all the time periods covered. And um, also addressing the specific areas of the form for your investigation is applicable to you. So if you'll also remember, you, in EQIP, you used to have to go through the entire form. Inside the electronic system of EAP, it has branching. So if you answer yes and no questions and it doesn't pertain to you, it, keep, it keeps you out of that range. So you don't have to go down this plethora of unnecessary questions. So the time is sped up. Uh, the error checking and correction is validated before you can go forward. And we're seeing a lot of good results in the feedback on how that's helping us facilitate faster, uh, faster processing of an individual applicant through the, through the system. We have to take a break. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic of the panel was the Trusted Workforce 2.0. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. 
Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic of that panel, Trusted Workforce 2.0. My guests were Matt Eanes, the Director of the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office at the Office of Personnel Management, Heather Green, the Deputy Assistant Director for Vetting and Risk Operations and Consolidated Adjudicated Services at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, Jeff Smith, the Program Executive Officer for the National Background Investigation Services, also at DCSA, and Mary Rose McCaffrey, the Vice President of Security at Northrop Grumman. To begin this segment, we hear from Heather Green of DCSA. It continues to be an exciting time for personal security reform efforts. Uh, in addition to what Jeff mentioned on some Invis efforts, DCSA has been extremely busy implementing several other initiatives to support Trusted Workforce 2.0 policy implementation. So I'm going to go over just two concepts. One, uh, focusing on the initial vetting concept. So VRO currently processes the initial investigation request for the National Industrial Security Program contractors. And we also issue interim determinations. Uh, right now, we average seven days for interims to be issued for, for that those contractors. We average about 100,000 interims per year. So obviously, a, a lot of work ongoing in that area. But we are looking at how we can make that even better. So, you know, future automation, we're, we're looking to bolster the timeliness of those interim determinations with more data to inform quality risk-based decisions. So we are piloting several efforts in this area. Specifically, we have ongoing pilots, something called high-yield check pilot, or also known as rapid vetting pilot. So the goal in this is to obtain as much high-value information up front rapidly as possible to inform that risk-based decision. So we're, we're making some strides and some uh, headway in, in that, that perspective. Uh, what happens next uh, for our NIST contractors is once you get through that initial vetting process or as you're going through that initial vetting process, you are enrolled in continuous vetting. So continuous vetting at this point replaces the five-year and 10-year periodic reinvestigations. As you men mentioned, Jason, with that ongoing and, and often automated determination of a person's risk, right? So we develop information as it occurs. So all of industry, congratulations. Uh, you are now fully enrolled in a continuous vetting compliant program. And a lot of work went into that to be what, what's called Trusted Workforce 1.5 compliant, which covers all seven data categories. So we do uh, appreciate your support on that. Um, it was definitely a team effort, uh, but we, we made it. That means there's about a million defense contractors or NIST contractors, I should say, that are enrolled uh, in that continuous vetting program. And as I, I mentioned a minute ago, that means that periodic reinvestigations are no longer required. So that, again, that a, was a heavy lift, and we, we made it to that piece in our journey here. Uh, with that being said, we are still requiring updated data every five years. It is critical that we obtain that updated information from the subject. Think things like addresses or place of employment or, you know, where an individual uh, is going to school, close associations, some of that information that, that we need to have to ensure we have adequate coverage of the automated record checks. Right now, uh, it is coming in uh, every five years. We put that guidance out on the DCSA website, requesting everyone's adherence to that. Uh, we're working with, with industry as well as all of our DOD services and fourth estate agencies on how we continue to meet that goal, get caught up to that five-year mark. But right now, we're just asking for a plan, right? Just put your plan of action together, and we're going to help together move forward in that direction. But in the future, we don't want to have to rely on the uh, old SF-86. We want to have it automated. So we're looking at having self-reporting mechanisms 
in order to obtain real-time changes. We don't want to wait five years to find out someone has moved <laughs> or someone has uh, information to report to us. We want it to be, you know, real-time so that we can update our continuous vetting automated record checks so that we can make sure we have a robust quality CV program. So those are a couple items there. One other thing I'll throw in that, that's new, um, we are also looking to begin using conditionals and CV together as a risk management approach for industry. We are already doing this with our military and civilian population. So we are looking to move towards using this as an option with our industry population, hopefully this summer, more to follow, more communication, more partnership to talk about how exactly that, that is going to look. But what this is, is it will allow our adjudicators to grant eligibility when guideline issues are not immediately mitigated by available information. We can actually use that risk-based approach of enrolling someone in continuous vetting and then monitoring the individual and that behavior uh, to make sure it is mitigated over time. Without us using the conditional option, it would mean that uh, adjudicators would potentially need to request additional information or initiate due process. So we're estimating that there'll be several hundred uh, individuals that will not go through due process. We can monitor them through CV um, and then continue to work together to mitigate that risk. So I'll stop there. Those are kind of some highlights of what's going on right now um, in our, our journey in, of implementation. And once again, I want to say thank you to industry for, for being good partners and, and working our way through initiatives. So thank you. Let me take a half a step back and, and ask about the enrolling contractors into the CV program. Is it full CV program? Meaning, again, everything is, is looking at as near real time as possible, changes, updates, data. Is there a difference between the contractor side and the, the military and civilian side for feds? No, actually, there, there is no difference. So our, our NIST contractors are enrolled in our CV program that I just spoke to is the same program that we have our military and our civilian population enrolled in. So the same uh, suite of data sources same um, uh, agency-specific information that's flowing in and uh, complying with all requirements of the continuous vetting program. And right, as I you mentioned, the- some, some of those data sources are event-driven. So yes, you, you gave an example earlier of, of an arrest. Uh, that would be something that would be an event-driven data source that we get an alert on. Some of them are time-based. So for, for example, financial, you know, running a credit report, we're not going to credit run that every day. So we run that on a specific periodicity because credit doesn't necessarily change um, you know, on, on a regular basis. Let's go over to Mary Rose from Northrop Grumman. Mary, you've been very patient uh, from your perspective. I don't know if you want to just react to our uh, what you've heard so far or what you're seeing in industry. Tell us something we don't know. So first and foremost, um, I will react. It has been a partnership all along from the early days of the backlog to try to reduce the backlog to the initiatives of a DCSA on the new transferred trusted workforce and the various uh, elements thereof, whether it's EAP, whether it's CV, whether it's CE. I will say that industry, you know, as you know, industry makes up a big partner to what the federal agencies are trying to accomplish. And as such, it is important that we continue to partner as we move through this. Fail early, fail often, do it with industry because there's usually a little more resiliency than some of the bigger federal agencies. So one, we have been a partner all along. Two, we have had people working with both Jeff and Heather's team and Matt's team for years now of that 4.5. I don't know what the breakout is, but 
government doesn't build anything, industry builds it all. And so in the environment, we need to be part and parcel. Everyone in industry is more than willing to go along on the journey and partner, but they are also going to be very mindful of what I call outcomes. So Jeff talks about the outcomes of getting everybody over the threshold. The threshold is just step one of many steps throughout this process. So every time there is a new step, industry has to figure out how does that affect them in terms of cost, schedule, timeliness of getting people to work. As you very articulately stated, the labor market today is driving interest in people wanting or not wanting to work in a classified environment. And if they have to wait 18 months, they can go to work for somebody else. So the real driver for industry is how quickly can we make a risk decision for people to get to work? And then with CE and CV, how can we move them across contracts so we don't start all over? Because that, it just becomes a limiter to why people don't want to work in a classified environment anymore because it's too hard. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic of the panel was the Trusted Workforce 2.0. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic of that panel, Trusted Workforce 2.0. My guests were Matt Eanes, the Director of the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office at the Office of Personnel Management, Heather Green, the Deputy Assistant Director for Vetting Risk Operations and Consolidated Adjudicated Services at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, Jeff Smith, the Program Executive Officer for the National Background Investigation Services, also at DCSA, and Mary Rose McCaffrey, the Vice President of Security at Northrop Grumman. Mary, you bring up a really interesting point about the workforce and the need to wait. Do you, from, from your perspective, and we, I, I gave the data earlier on, and we're going to get to folks' questions in a second, so please submit them. We've gotten some already. But real quick, what's the workforce look like for Northrop today or just as you see across industry? Is it still, hey, once you get that clearance, I can jump from job to job. I'm looking for, my, for the most exciting job versus – the most one that pays me? Is it all being driven by what to these days from your perspective? So I would tell you that, you know, one, there has been extraordinary progress in the time frame that it takes to get a clearance. It used to be almost a year. It is now less than a year unless there is an issue and that gets resolved accordingly. Two, the labor market today is driving for certain skills, engineering, College degrees are being relooked at across all of industry and the classified cyber environments. And despite the tech companies laying off people, it's not the same people you need for the classified cyber environment. So those skills today are what I would call the 1980s, people jumping company to company to company, and they were getting a 5% increase. I will tell you people are getting 20% increases. So that's driving up labor costs. And so really... The key is, is they are moving if they're not happy with their employer. So there's a great deal of emphasis on making sure people are happy at what they're doing and they're fulfilled in their job. That being said, it is not still very easy to go 
from contract to contract, you know, at the same level. If it's an Air Force, you know, TS to an ICTS and there's nothing in it, it's a relatively easy scenario. If it's anything, you know, above, you have to do a new uh, review of an SAP or SCI. So it's not as seamless yet as we can be. But I know in the work that Matt and Jeff and Heather are doing, that's really where we're trying to get to with both all of the services as well as the intel agencies. Jason, do you mind if I jump in for a moment? I want to tie a couple things together that Mary Rose, Jeff, and Heather just said to the point Mary Rose is making on speed. Uh, one of the core tenets of trusted workforce is to improve the speed and the mobility of the workforce. Heather mentioned early in her remarks the high yield checks, and Jeff mentioned EAP, as well as the uh, low side repositories. Uh, the reason those things are so important is EAP's integration with the the BI capabilities and the low side repository capabilities that Jeff's mentioning, coupled with the high yield checks, is going to allow us to vet people much faster on the front end of the process, significantly reducing how quickly we can get someone to work, which allows you to vet new people faster, which decreases the, the pressures on the labor market. The second is moving people around. There's a bunch of changes happening to the systems to gather the appropriate data that's needed for the mobility of the workforce to support both things that are under the core definition of reciprocity, but also the things that scale out into this larger construct of transfer of trust that we've defined under the policies. Uh, and the needed data elements are in the system. So as Jeff iteratively delivers these capabilities, month over month, year over year for the next couple of years, those things are just going to get faster and more seamless. But as Mary Rose said, it's going to be a journey. We're going to fail in some areas. It's going to be bumpy. And we need industry's uh, partnership and working with us to get it right, as well as your patience uh, as we run into challenges. Jason, can I add something as well? Of course. Part of that Mary Rose was referring to is the you know, sharing of information between potentially DOD and the IC community to make those transitions as efficient, timely, and effective as possible. And I will tell you that we have really made a lot of progress with just our collaboration efforts uh, between DCSA, um, DOD, and the IC agencies. In fact, I've had several meetings in person. They have visited DCSA, VRO specifically, to talk CV programs and CV reciprocity. And next week I have a uh, another IC agency coming to visit and we're doing a, a full day collaboration day where they're visiting uh, DCSA. And then in the afternoon we're visiting their agency and having a, uh, a sharing of the minds and information on how we can get better at this, looking at all vetting scenarios, including that transfer of trust and the um, continuous vetting scenario. So we are all aware that we need to get better, uh, and you have my commitment and DCSA's commitment to, to keep driving in that direction, and I can see that from at a very senior level at these IC agencies, they're committed to it as well. So looking forward. And Heather and, and you all and Matt and, and Mary Rose all bring up this idea of reciprocity, and, and I just want to remind folks, we're going to get to audience questions, and, but reciprocity, is that still the big, is that the long pole in the tent? I know the other Jason Miller, which is always kind of odd to say that from the Office of Management and Budget, he talked about this, the long pole intent moving to this trusted workforce 
but it sounds like reciprocity is still the, the, the biggest challenge that, that is out there. Heather, maybe talk a little bit about when you have those conversations with the IC, with the DOD folks, with other partners, they want reciprocity, but, or is it just a matter of time and, and, and trust? And I can speak from the DOD perspective. Our adjudication services worked very, very hard over the last few years to reduce the time it takes to make that reciprocity decision of those individuals coming into DOD. We are averaging one day. So hopefully industry sees and feels that for the, again, for those cases that are coming into DOD, whether it's from another federal agency or uh, from the IC community. And that is down from about 65 days in mid-2020. So a, a lot of work, Lean Six Sigma, a lot of efficiencies made there, but I do fully understand that it's also going the other the other way, right? That you know uh, the IC agencies or or specific programs reciprocating you know our eligibility and our clearances. So that is something again that you know we're going to continue to to strive to work with our partners to make sure they have all the information that they need to make that timely um, decision on their end. So DCSA is here to support that. So, Jason, if I can jump in. So I can tell you from an industry standpoint, what Heather says is absolutely true. The reality of transferring someone with a, whether it's a secret or a top secret, is a relatively much more efficient process. If there are suitability requirements, and those suitability requirements may require something else, whether it's medical or additional screening, that is really an agency call. And so industry follows the agency call. But in the end, you know, a straight TS is relatively easily transferred. There are some in industry who would love to have access to all that data. You know, we are always mindful of reminding them is once you know what the government knows, you have to do something about it. So you might not really want access to all that data. So, you know, there is a baseline of risk, and once that baseline of risk is determined, people can move pretty seamlessly. It is really dependent upon contract and how quickly do we move people from contract to contract. But to, back to Jeff's point and to Matt's point, what DCSA and the PAC PMO have been trying to do is the more we can automate, the more we can put data and information, it is not a technology question anymore. It is how do we protect the data? How do we allow people to use the data with the right partitions and the right privileges so that instead of ordering up a paper file from someone, you now have the ability to use technology to the advantage of both the government and industry. And the other good news is some of our sponsors are helping much of industry automate their own processes everything with, you know, robotics. So we don't send in what I call bad data in brings bad data out. So you want almost a less than 1% error rate before it goes into Jeff. Now the challenge is with the new e-app, do we have to do anything on the back end to change that? Whether it's Northrop or Lockheed or Boeing or any of the mom and pops, you know, it's data in, data out. Jeff, you've been quiet. I'll let you, if you want to jump in somewhere, or I can go to audience questions. I don't want to leave you out in the case if there's something you want to hit upon. Yeah, maybe just to pick up on the data issue. So one of the biggest challenges is obviously seven disparate systems that we've been living with that has a multitude 
of data repositories that's housed uh, our DOD, our industry, and, and our federal partners' data. What people may not recognize is the complexity of having data strewn, uh, you know, deliberately across multiple disparate systems. And the goal here for in, uh, for Endless is really, Matt hit on it, is to bring all that data in, uh, cleanse that data, it, and uh, then make sure that when we remap it back into Endless, it's coming from a central repository. And this is critical. Uh, in, in the process itself of mining the data and getting in and clean, cleansing it and then remapping it, we are discovering the anomalies of bad data. Uh, so as best as an individual can be at uh, loading their own form over time, we've, had, we've got 25 years of data uh, in repositories that has been bad. It needs to be uh, addressed. It needs to be cordoned off. And then we need to take corrective action as a as a whole of government. So we are seeing, seeing that. Uh, we hope through the process uh, that all new data, all new applicants, is a much cleaner, more robust, well-defined end-to-end uh, -end process, so we get rid of some of these anomalies of that gar garbage in, garbage out, and it, it again speeds up the process. Yeah, Jason, to Jeff and Mary Rose's point, the better the data is, plus continuous vetting, moving us from a five to ten-year model to a much shorter cycle. So when agencies are taking people on, they're taking smaller bets instead of bigger bets. Uh, plus, getting the data into a repository to make it exposable, as Mary said, with the right Mary said, is with the right um, role space and access based controls. You know, sometimes the process slows itself down because we need to look for one small piece of information. So, as an example, of a position carries a firearm, the Lautenberg Amendment kicks in. So we need to review the case to make sure that none of the Lautenberg factors apply. If they do, the person can't move into the position. If they don't, they can move into the position. Well, that data is not easily captured and exposed by the system. So in today's process, we have to pull the case file. We have to review it. We've got to go through it. And then we let the person know. Well, that slows down and puts friction into the process. So what we're working towards is gathering the superset of information that the repositories need to capture so that we can automate as many of those transactions or expose that specific data to the user so we can keep the production line moving through quickly. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic of the panel was the Trusted Workforce 2.0. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic of that panel, Trusted Workforce 2.0. My guests were Matt Eanes, the Director of the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office at the Office of Personnel Management, Heather Green, the Deputy Assistant Director for Vetting Risk Operations and Consolidated Adjudicated Services at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, Jeff Smith, the Program Executive Officer for the National Background Investigation Services, also at DCSA, and Mary Rose McCaffrey, the Vice President of Security at Northrop Grumman. For this final segment, the panelists take audience questions. And this comes from uh, Molly over at Fed Times. She asks, continuous vetting may be something that raises angst for some people. To help deal with that concern, what transparency was built into MBIS? Maybe this is a, a Jeff question. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of throw it out to the group, but, but I'll, I'll start there. Yeah, so maybe I'll start and maybe Heather can back clean up on this. Uh, some of it's mission-related. 
I would say, you know, the, the whole of person concept for continuous vetting is fundamentally predicated on a lot of automation being added to collect that whole of person. So, you know, in the past, we maybe relied on a lot of manual uh, processes, phone calls, checks, uh, law enforcement agencies. So in the automation of, of multiple automated records, checks, or ARCs, you have the ability to be influenced now or at least see information on uh, individuals from financial uh, to uh, DUIs uh, to uh, all types of criminal activities. And then the system is built to support Heather and the VRO in the sense of alerts uh, from these various uh, records checks on on an individual so that we can build a better and you know, a faster response time around that whole of person. So uh, I think it, if you want to talk about transparency, I don't know that there's secrets about what data we're collecting. They're all about the thresholds from financial to criminal uh, to, again, various other checks. Uh, nothing's I guess in the sense of there's nothing secretive going on. Everybody should know that uh, when you're a trust, when you're brought into the trusted environment, uh, you're kind of accepting the fact that uh, we want the best person uh, to work in our um, you know, uh, for the government to uh, to get after these problems and guard our nation's secrets. So we're just trying to guard that uh, end to end. So maybe uh, Heather, I don't know if you want to maybe back clean up on a particular question. Oh. Yeah, I would add that, you know, as, as Mr. Smith uh, mentioned, policy would be very transparent with what the policy is and the CV requirements are. Uh, so anytime you can, uh, and we're consistent as well, so anytime you can see the seven data categories that uh, are required for a CV compliant program. We're also transparent with the enrollment. So obviously it's, it's uh, role-based, as Matt uh, alluded to earlier as well. If you are in Invis, then you can see the CV enrollment and the subjects that are enrolled in CV, you know, as long as you have an owning uh, relationship and a, you know, a need to know that information. So that, that will be there to assist as well. So we get that question often, how, how do I know that my um, workforce is enrolled in continuous vetting? So you will be able to, to see that, run your report, know when you need to um, you know, assist with getting someone enrolled that may not be enrolled and so forth. Um, I mean, obviously, there is, you know, uh, the, the requirements haven't changed from a Privacy Act perspective. There's only a certain amount of information that can be shared with others uh, when uh, information is developed. Um, obviously, when information is developed, it's based on the federal investigative standards. It's investigated appropriately and adjudicated. Uh, so uh, full transparency on the process, as well as the parameters of what you're enrolled in, as well as the fact that individuals are are not enrolled in continuous vetting. We got another question that came in, and, and this one is is interesting too. This comes from uh, someone from over at uh, DIA, who's a program manager, and they say, "Is Trusted Workforce 2.0 going to make things simpler and faster for Gear System users?" From and again, you may need to help me on this one. SPOC to TAs. I think they're talking about the Deer's Rapid stuff and. Yep. I- Related to CAC and SCIF uh, tokens, we won't really be playing too much in that space, aside from vetting the personnel who have to engage with those things. So there's a, le- a list of preconditions that DMDC provides in their documentation on that. Some of them are related to the preconditions for vetting. So we'll be able to vet folks faster and better related to that. But DEERS and RAPIDS is outside of the scope of Invis and Trusted Workforce. Got an interesting one from uh, Richard who writes, 
How do you see insider threat programs being included in the Trusted Workforce 2.0? Mary, do you want to maybe start us off and, and look at it from a, a, a Northrop Grumman perspective? Insider threat is all part of the whole person concept. So, you know, uh, today, anyone who is cleared is required to inform us of various events. You know, whether that's, you know, as Jeff alluded to, whether it's a DUI or a financial lien or whatever, that really becomes a corollary complementary to insider threat. And many of the tools, although it is not, because I'm not going to take Jeff off his primary focus, which is get us to EAP and NBIS, insider threat could easily be in a future downward phase where the data that they collect is already there. And then industry could put in additional information. So it really becomes the whole picture of how we can look at the person back to Heather's point. CE and CV are really how you take all the disparate data fields, put them together, and you see that picture sooner with all the technology capabilities. So it really is a benefit to leverage this technology for what companies are doing right now on insider threat. Yeah, Mary Rose is exactly correct with where the model is headed. Uh, Trusted Workforce has three components of it for continuous vetting. The first are the automated record checks, which is what Heather referenced as the big seven things that are checked. The second is time or event-driven investigative activity. And the third is agency or organization unique information. And that's where insider threat stuff falls. Uh, the reason it's not called insider threat is because that executive order only applies to the national security space. And we need a model that spans security suitability and credentialing domains. But the intent is to feed that information uh, bidirectionally in this model. We've got some ongoing work right now with industry to map out what information sharing could and should look like. So expect some stuff to come out from ODNI on that front. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The topic of that panel was Trusted Workforce 2.0. The guests on that panel were Matt Eanes, the Director of the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office in the Office of Personnel Management, Heather Green, the Deputy Assistant Director for Vetting Risk Operations and Consolidated Adjudicative Services at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, Jeff Smith, the Program Executive Officer for the National Background Investigation Services, also in DCSA, and Mary Rose McCaffrey, the Vice President of Security at Northrop Grumman. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 